It is Monday, June 27th, 2022, and this is Ozarks at Large on your public radio station, KUAF. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Thanks for starting the work week with us. I'm Kyle Kellum. As the Clinton House Museum reopens in Fayetteville, we'll review Bill and Hillary Clinton's time in Fayetteville. Randy Dixon from the Pryor Center will guide us. And we have a couple of introductions to make. Our newest reporter, Anna Pope, is covering the area's growth and the region's rural communities. Her first story for us is on tomorrow's show. We'll learn a bit more about her today. And Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore will introduce us to the new voice for the Northwest Arkansas Naturals and explain how he gets ready for his broadcast. First, Friday, the United States Supreme Court decided a Mississippi case known as Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health that reversed Roe v. Wade, a 50-year-old federal constitutional right to abortion. The ruling makes way for states to ban or drastically limit access to abortion. Twenty-six states, including Arkansas, have trigger laws to enact the Supreme Court decision. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich gathered reaction over the weekend from Arkansas state officials, abortion providers, a leading Arkansas right-to-life advocate, and street protesters. Protests erupted across Arkansas Friday evening in reaction to the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to reverse a constitutional right to an abortion in place for half a century. (laughs) Hundreds of people gathered on the Fayetteville Town Square, including pro-choice activist Kit Raley from Fort Smith, who admonished right-to-life conservatives. They can force us to have a child, even though we don't want it. But do they do a single thing for after that? No! Four hours earlier, Arkansas Attorney General Leslie Rutledge, flanked by Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson and House Speaker Matthew Shepard, held a press conference in Little Rock to certify a legislative measure banning abortion for girls, teens, and women in Arkansas, enacted under a trigger law. In 2019, our General Assembly passed a law, Act 180, that serves as a trigger bill to stop abortions in the state of Arkansas. And as the Attorney General, it is my role to certify whether or not the U.S. Supreme Court has, in fact, overruled Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, that thereby restoring to the state of Arkansas the authority to prohibit abortion. In light of the Supreme Court opinion issued today in the Dobbs case, I am proud to announce as Chief Legal Officer for the state of Arkansas, that the United States Supreme Court has in fact overruled Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, thereby restoring the state of Arkansas the authority to prohibit abortions. Smiling broadly, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson spoke next. Personally, I'm grateful for the court's ruling today because I have fought for a number of decades for greater protections for the unborn throughout my political life. And as governor, I'm gratified by the court's decision because the people of Arkansas have declared the public policy of this state is to protect the life of the unborn. Any physician in Arkansas who performs a medical abortion commits a felony offense punishable by up to 10 years in prison and a fine of up to $100,000. Emergency abortions to assist girls, teens, and women impregnated as a consequence of incest or rape are also banned. The governor announced that a million dollars will be distributed to pregnancy centers around the state to assist women who otherwise might seek an abortion. But if you take time to calculate costs, that million dollars will only cover the prenatal delivery and postnatal costs for 100 Arkansas women. Around 3,000 Arkansas women sought abortions annually in recent years before the ban. We knew this moment was coming, but the impact of today's opinion, erasing nearly 50 years of constitutional protections for abortion, is beyond devastating. Emily Wales is president and CEO of Planned Parenthood Great Plains, which provides reproductive medical and family planning services to people in Missouri, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Arkansas. In the region we serve, people in Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma have fewer constitutional rights today than they did yesterday. Our patients, our team members, and our loved ones no longer have the right to bodily autonomy, the right to make extremely personal medical decisions, 
This morning, our team members told patients scheduled for care in Arkansas that they could not be seen. Wales warned that it will be impossible for Planned Parenthood providers in Kansas, where abortion remains legal for now, to possibly meet demand. There are only four places in the state of Kansas where you can get an abortion right now. Two of them are in Wichita, two of them are in the Kansas City area. For many patients throughout Kansas, abortion is still not accessible because you have to travel hours from home, you have to wait a state-mandated period before you can access that care. We are going to do all we can to serve as a point of care for the patients who can get to us, but we're also realistic that many of the people who would otherwise have chosen to get care as close to home as possible will have to look at states like New Mexico, Colorado, or Illinois. Dr. Aman El Saden, medical director for Planned Parenthood Great Plains, spoke from Little Rock. We are going to have to rely heavily on national and international resources for patients that cannot get this care. I'm thinking of aid access. I'm thinking of um, abortionfinder.org, which if patients are in need of any abortion care, they can look there to determine what places they can receive that care. So those would be my primary recommendations at this point when people find themselves in situations where they um, are in a state that has taken away their basic human rights um, and fundamental freedom to control their own lives. Women in Arkansas are also banned from having medical emergency abortions unless their life is at risk. Jerry Cox, executive director of Family Council, a conservative nonprofit based in Little Rock, has fought to outlaw any rationale for abortion for decades. This is historic because the Supreme Court has overturned not only Roe v. Wade, but also Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And that means that every state gets to make their own abortion laws as it was prior to Roe v. Wade in 1973. Women seek abortions for economic, emotional, psychological, and medical reasons. And when abortion was first legalized almost 50 years ago, data show a dramatic reduction in teen birth rates when many such infants were placed up for adoption or into foster care. But Cox doesn't believe banning teens and women from obtaining abortions will contribute to a new surge in foster care and adoption cases across the state. I I don't believe that's going to happen. Uh, If it does, we're all going to have to step up and meet that need however we can. Which raises the question as to why nearly 5,000 infants and children are currently in Arkansas's foster care system. According to the Institute for Women's Policy Research, the abortion ban in Arkansas is expected to have a disproportionate effect on lower-income people, which could cost the state $1.2 billion annually. Back at the Supreme Court ruling protest on the Fayetteville Town Square, a young woman quietly holds up coat hangers. I'm holding coat hangers because they have killed many women who were desperate. I'm ready for it to end. Before abortion was legalized in America, women, the historic record shows, resorted to implements such as knitting needles and coat hangers inserted into the cervix to induce abortions. Many often bled to death or perished from infection. Wearing a shirt emblazoned with the words unapologetically black and devastating, Tamia White attended the protest. Well, actually today has been God awful. As a woman who has been raped, sexually assaulted, and have struggled with mental illness of my own. It's just kind of crazy that anybody could try to tell me that a man can force himself on me, but the government can force him to stay inside of me for nine more months. If Republicans win majority control of Congress and the White House over the next two years, a nationwide congressional abortion ban will likely be enacted. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. The Arkansas Department of Health reports nearly 1,400 new cases of COVID-19 detected in testing results counted Friday and Saturday. There are more than 10,000 active cases in the state with 188 people in Arkansas hospitals with COVID-19. Arkansas agricultural leaders are advocating for changes to the federal farm bill, which is voted on by Congress every five years. 
This week on Arkansas PBS, Andrew Grabmeyer with the Agricultural Council of Arkansas said financial protections in the 2023 Farm Bill should be flexible to respond to significant changes to the market. The uh, price loss coverage, PLC, and that's a, a baseline reference price that's used for, for rice. That was established 10 years ago in 2012 using production costs back then. 10 years advance from there, our costs have gone up. We need to have that updated and we need to have some indexing factors that are built in so that we're not just stuck with it for five years moving forward. The supply chain issues caused by the pandemic and the fertilizer price increases triggered by the war in Ukraine have had a significant impact on the cost to produce rice. According to the Arkansas Farm Bureau, the state is responsible for nearly 40 percent of the country's total rice production. The 2022 season of Naturals Baseball continues at Arvest Ballpark in Springdale. Ticket information, list of promotions, and more available at nwanaturals.com. Crystal Bridges presents the 2022 Forest Concert Series with musical performances each Saturday night through July. This series merges national and local acts in the North Forest, where visitors can enjoy live music and dancing, surrounded by art installations by Dale Chihuly and more. Crystalbridges.org for tickets and information. The deadline for the next batch of Artists 360 grants is fast approaching. Mid-America Arts Alliance is currently searching for the fifth cohort for this program. The idea is to help qualifying artists in any medium by offering guidance in grant making and professional development. 26 awards ranging from $1,500 to $25,000 are to be distributed. Applications due Thursday. More details at artist 360.art. The in-person portion of the Bentonville Film Festival is done. And Saturday night, the film Every Day in Kamoki was announced as the best narrative feature at the 8th Annual Festival. Director and co-writer Alika Tengun was in attendance with the cast. This film follows Naz Kawakami, a Hapa Hawaiian Japanese man like myself, as he prepares to leave Hawaii for the first time. Of course, leaving everything you know and love behind isn't easy especially when you're leaving behind one of the most beautiful places on earth. Naz and I have been friends for a few years now, and we'd always discuss doing a project together. So when I found out he was moving... That's Alika Tengun describing the movie in an interview that you can find at imdb.com. The virtual part of the festival continues through Friday. More information can be found at bentonvillefilm.org. And Bentonville city officials are inviting city residents to make comments about a series of five drainage and street projects. The public meeting... Wednesday from 4.30 to 6 at the Bentonville Public Library. You can find a list of the projects that will be discussed at BentonvilleAR.com. There's a fella here been talking some about being our next congressman. He's a new man. Bill Clinton is his name. He says the administration we got is the bunch who put us in this spot. And Clinton says we don't need more of the same. This is Ozarks at Large with me. Randy Dixon from the Prior Center for the David and Barbara Prior Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. What was that we just that heard? wasn't that catchy? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it was a bit catchy. Yeah, uh, yeah. It it's one of those old political ads you would hear on the radio, or in this case, television. It was over uh, pictures of of the candidate, and um, it was it was pretty commonplace then. This was from seventy. Four. Right. And yeah, yeah I do, I'm glad you mentioned that it was commonplace because it may sound odd now, but those sorts of jingles on the radio and television in the 70s and 60s, maybe in, yeah, even into the early 80s, were not uncommon. Oh, no. And there were ad agencies that made their entire living just off writing jingles. They would have jingle writers and a, a studio and, and, you know, singers, singers, musicians. Singers, yeah. yeah. It, it was a big industry. And, of course, that one was for uh, a very young Bill Clinton. Yes. He was a uh, new UA law professor. I uh, had moved down here, and um, he decided to run for Congress. But this week's prior center profile is on not only Bill but Hillary uh, in their years. And it wasn't— uh, years in Fayetteville. Yeah, and it wasn't a long time, no. but it certainly made uh, an impression on the area. And certainly when a town has one person who becomes president and another who becomes almost president, that town will embrace those years. 
That's right. So we have the Clinton House Museum. That's right. And yeah. we're going to talk about that, too, because yeah. it's had some changes and uh, some good news about that. Plus, I want to do a little teaser mm-hmm. for uh, a project that the Prior Center ah. uh, is working on about Hillary Rodham Clinton and her time in Arkansas and okay. Fayetteville. So, but, but we're going to concentrate on this, uh, what, two years that the Clintons yes. lived in Fayetteville. <clears throat> That's right. And um, he, he was hired uh, under very strange circumstances, uh, but it makes sense when you hear this story. Uh, Al Witte, who uh, was a, a law professor uh, for four or five decades uh, here at the university, and um, he was the one, he was on the committee that was hiring a position for a law professor. And he had a friend, Bert Marshall, who was a Yale law professor and had also been in the Kennedy administration under Robert Kennedy. And um, he was a law professor and had a student that he wanted to recommend. So <laughs> here's a pretty funny story uh, from Al Witte about this recommendation he got and then his first encounter with Bill Clinton. I get a letter from Burke Marshall. It says, um, I recommend uh, one of my students, William J. Clinton, uh, for a position on your faculty. I said, who the hell is William J. Clinton? He hasn't applied for anything. So I didn't, the name zero meaning. Um, about a week later, I get a letter from William J. Clinton. Now, the, the, the big negative was he hadn't yet graduated from law school. And you'd think that you ought to at least have a law degree before you get hired as a law professor. Um, but on the other hand, he was a Rhodes Scholar, and we ain't had any of them since William J. Fulbright was a Rhodes Scholar. As it turns out, of course, that's why Clinton's a Rhodes Scholar, on account of William J. But be that as it may, Clinton made it easy to interview him, even though he wasn't qualified, because he said in his letter, I'm coming to Fayetteville anyway, so there will be no expense in bringing him up here. He's paying his own way. So could we meet on Sunday, whatever the date, was May, I think, at the Fayetteville Country Club. So I take my two boys out for Sunday brunch, and eventually this guy shows up, and uh, I've thought about this moment a lot over the years. Um, do you know who Little Abner was? He looked a lot like Little Abner. Uh, he's about the same height. Um, he had that big mass of hair. And, uh, but the most striking comparison was that he had what clearly was his high school graduation suit on because they used to call it high water, but the cuffs were like up this far from... on the ankle and um, and and at that point it becomes somewhat mysterious because about 15 minutes after the we met I I was all all in favor of hiring him I was all in favor of being his campaign manager and his advocate which I was I later and my boys were good would follow him anywhere and um, and he was up around introducing himself to all the diners at the Fayetteville Country Club because, as we later found out, the reason he came here was to test the waters for running for Congress. I didn't know any of that. Again, I'm so innocent and naive. I didn't know. But that's why he came here is because it was uh, the so-called Watergate election when all the Republican congressmen were in trouble and many of them defeated because of uh, Watergate. And... um, John Paul Hammerschmidt's only real campaign was uh, when Clinton at least scared him. <clears throat> but uh, I didn't know any of that, so we went back, and and I think everybody, all the ones I remember, felt pretty much as I did, and that is, gee, we wish he had a law degree, but got a Rhodes Scholar, you know, and... Uh, and then it, one, he did have one thing that kind of mitigated the lack of a degree, and that is he had taught constitutional law at a night law school in New Haven. I think it's called New Haven Law School or something. And um, 
So he had had actual teaching experience. So he got hired. Al Witte, uh, quite the storyteller, knows how to knows how to frame a story and take you along. Yeah, he was great, and he was multi talented. Not only was he a law professor, he was also he represented. Um, That's right. The University of Arkansas uh, sports department in the NCAA, right. and eventually became president of uh, the NCAA. Right. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Woody hires him in '73, and then the next year, he hires uh, his. I guess at the time they they weren't even engaged yet, but Hillary Rodham. And she comes to teach. And I believe she, when he called, she asked Al Witte, what, what will I be teaching? And he said, I don't know. We'll figure that out when you get here. <laughs> so she had just finished the Watergate uh, on, the, on the committee right. and came down here. So uh, Bill Clinton decides he's going to run for Congress. One of his early supporters was uh, Freddie Nixon, and her husband, Vic, was a local Methodist minister. And so I talked to them the other day, and this is what Freddie said about uh, meeting Bill Clinton. And while we were in Fayetteville, uh, Carl Willock and I were in a Sunday school class together, and Vic was the associate pastor at, at, at uh, Central United Methodist Church. So then we we were there, and then we moved to Berryville. And then um, Carl uh, gets in touch with us and says he wants to bring uh, this young man over to Berryville to meet us, uh, Bill Clinton, that he's decided to run for Congress. And so that's, that's how we first met Bill, was through through Carl bringing Bill over to the parsonage in Berryville, and we meeting him. And mm-hmm. while we are talking, um, we're just talking, chit-chatting, getting acquainted, and he was talking about, you know, wanting to find places for him to, to um, you know, meet people and that sort of thing. And I said, well, and I just asked, I said, well, would you want me to, uh, to Bill, I said, would you want me to see, I think I could get you a speaking engagement with the local Rotary Club. Mm. And uh, they, they said, well, sure. So this this congressional race, of course, it's against John Paul Hammerschmidt, who, spoiler alert, wins the race about 52 to 48 percent. Right. And, well, you know, he was very popular. Yeah. Um, and he did know that this young kid... Uh, was was someone he was going to have to deal with. And here's what he had to say, John Paul Hammerschmidt, uh, in a 2009 prior center interview with Scott Lunsford. In 74, see, that was the Nixon year. Mm-hmm. Bill started that campaign early, and I knew he was a serious threat because, for one thing, I still had a Democrat district. And it was a Democrat year that year mm-hmm. for them to win. They picked up more House seats that year just about like they did this last time. Yeah, Bill's the only one of those that didn't win. You know, all these other guys, uh, Chris Dodd, uh, Normanetta, uh, Tom Daschle, all those guys came that year. And Bill, running in a Democrat district, was the only one that didn't win, and I felt good about that because he should have gone in. But that's why Bill occasionally m- remarks, well, you're responsible for me being in the White House, you know, because <laughs> what he means is if I beat you, I'd have probably gone a different route. You know? Right, right. Although knowing Bill, he'd probably find his way in the White House. <laughs> one way or another. <laughs> I love the way that, that ends like, ah, he would have gotten to the White House anyway. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> somehow. Yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, and, of course, the political career is not over yet. He becomes Arkansas's attorney general. Yes. And it, he was not deterred by this. No. By this for, and then he decided to make it a statewide race and, yeah, run for attorney general. I think he had a primary opponent. I don't think there was a Republican that was running. I think he just – I think it was a right a pretty um, – I wouldn't say easy, but there was not much opposition. 
Right. And his, he did not have a Republican uh, opponent, uh, and he had it so easy that he became uh, the campaign chairman for uh, Jimmy Carter. Right, the Arkansas. So, right, yeah. so, he, so he had it pretty easy. Now, one of his early friends and was in the administration, Steve Smith, and we know him uh, up here. Communications professor. Exactly. Yeah. And r- retired. Writer. Um, exactly. Um, but he, w- he met Bill Clinton in 1970 and got to know them, and he was in- heavily involved in this second campaign, and this is what he told me the other day. Clinton ran a, the most vigorous campaign and could actually won uh, without a runoff in the, in the primary, and then it was unopposed. In the unopposed, primary. right. Right. So, I mean, I, and I, I recall that we spent – $90,000 on that primary campaign. Uh, for Attorney General. For Attorney General. Yeah, the to- total campaign budget was about $90,000. And uh, he, I mean, he was just, I mean, he's a perpetual campaign machine. <laughs> <laughs> was uh, doing great and, and uh, walked away with it. So. And that's when he moved from Fayetteville, right? Yeah, in, in January they they moved to Little Rock and uh, got a little house on Evergreen in the Heights there or Hillcrest area, I guess. And mm-hmm. uh, but they lived in in Fayetteville from middle of '75 to the end of '76, and that's that's the house that uh, is now the Clinton House Museum. So this next clip I'm very excited about. Um, we. Uh, before the pandemic, the Pryor Center sat down with Hillary Rodham Clinton at the Clinton School down in Little Rock and uh, talked to her about her years in Arkansas, both in Fayetteville and in Little Rock. And we were able to sit down with her uh, for about two hours. And uh, this is what she says uh, about not only Fayetteville, but specifically the house that's now a museum. Well, that house is really meaningful to me, um, and I'm thrilled that it's a museum. Yes. Uh, And I visited a few years ago, and I thought that it was so well presented. Um, You know, that house um, was a house that literally I drove by. Bill was taking me to the airport, and I saw a for sale sign. All I said was, you know, it's a sweet-looking house. It's a cute little house. Mm -hmm. It's all I said. So I was gone for a couple of weeks and Bill picked me up at the airport. And by this time he'd asked me to marry him twice. And he said, (laughs) I'm not asking you again until you're ready to say yes. So we're driving from the airport and he goes, well, I bought that house you liked. So now you're going to have to marry me. I said, what house? He said, you know, the one you liked near the university. I didn't remember it. But when we pulled up, I thought, oh my God, I do remember it now. And he had bought the house. And he had furnished the house. No. He had gone to Barbara Pryor's mother's antique Big store. And he had bought an old white iron bed that um, he had, you know, put together in the bedroom. And he'd gone to, I don't know, Walmart's or Kmart at that time somewhere and bought sheets and uh, that's what he thought furnishing the house meant. There was no other <laughs> furniture, but, you know, there was a place to sleep. Um, and it was so touching. So, um, you know, some some weeks later, I said, yeah, we should get married. So we did get married in the house. And we had all of our friends come over uh, for the, you know, like, I, I so I told him we, we should get married. And he said, well, let's get married next Saturday before you change your mind. Oh so God. we literally got married in a week. And so that week, we had a lot of our friends, like some of our, our law faculty and other mm-hmm. friends came over and helped us paint, which we hadn't done yet. And, you know, we put up a little wallpaper in a few places just to try to get it ready to be married in. And it was great, as you know, from being in the house, it was a, it was a they had a great room uh, in the very front uh, which was a story and a half mm-hmm. tall. So it was a beautiful place with a, a floor to um, ceiling window. So it was a great place for something like a, a wedding. So we called our families and called a few close friends and said, okay, come on down. We're getting married on Saturday. And we did. Uh, 
I had kind of heard this anecdote before. I cannot imagine buying a house <laughs> and then saying, okay, now you got to marry me. I mean, obviously they had a great relationship going. Right, right. Still, that's – I would put that in the bold category. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, – or, or chancy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, had she said no, he, you know, right. be stuck with this house. Or, eh, you know, upon further review, I wasn't that excited about this house. <laughs> So this this clip you just heard uh, is part of this two-hour conversation uh, with Hillary Clinton, and we are planning on it. Uh, we're, we're in production right now with it, mm-hmm. and it's going to utilize the KTV archive. So you will see oh, her life uh, in Arkansas, but um, not only her talking about it, but also you will see her. Uh, through archival footage through that whole span of decades. Can I ask you something you may not know? But do we know where their wedding took place? Yes, it was there in the house. And is that where the reception was as well? Do we yes. Know? Okay. Yes, and she, you know, she was talking about the great room, right. and and um, so yeah, everything was in there. It was a okay. small, small group of people. Um, it's the museum mm-hmm. now, but it was closed for almost two years because of COVID. Right. And fortunately, it's it's reopened. And, um, you know, we heard from Steve Smith earlier, who was uh, big in the Clinton administration, but he's also president of the board of the Clinton House Museum. So he says the museum, it's reopened. And uh, they've made some changes to the exhibits in there. Okay. One of the yeah. things that we've done with reopening the museum and when it was first started, it was about President Clinton and almost entirely with sort of Hillary as an afterthought. But, you know, since that time, she's become a United States Senator and Secretary of State and party nominee for president. And uh, so now the museum is more balanced about both of their careers, but they still focus on their time together in Fayetteville. And that's a unique place in that uh, we're a you know, future president and governor and senator and secretary of state live. There aren't many places like that. that and certainly none that are open to the public. Okay, so the museum is reopened. It's, what, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? Yes. Are the operating hours? Ten in the morning to four in the afternoon. Okay. Yeah, and admission's free, by the way. But, you know, you, you can museum. always you make, can, a, you make a donation. Yeah. This is public radio. We know all about that. Yeah, that's true. It's free, that's but true. donations... Yes, keep us going. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, I mean, it's an awesome house. I was there last week. I stopped in, and we shot some photographs and video for this uh, conversation that we're going to. And our plan is to broadcast it on Arkansas PBS. Fantastic. Either later this year or early next year once we get it all worked out. But I think it's going to be a fantastic look, in-depth look at Hillary in Arkansas in her own words. Okay, I got one uh, extra bit of information that I came across. Please. Um, in looking into to this segment, um, guess what uh, Bill Clinton paid for that house in 1975? Okay. Uh, what's the square footage? Do you know? I, I'm guessing. Like, I would, like that would help me at all. I, I'm just well, trying to think smart. Well, I think it's a two-bedroom, okay. one-bath. I mean, it's okay. not a real big house. Close to the university, but that was not like a main thoroughfare in the mid-'70s. It was right. kind of nestled. It was on California, which is now named Clinton. Right. Yeah. Wooded. Okay, I'm going to say it was 1975. Five. I'll say $45,000. Try seventeen thousand two hundred. Wow! Yeah, can you believe that? <laughs> now to take that a you, step further, you can't get a you can't get an SUV for twice that. Now. I know, isn't that crazy? <laughs> and I mean, I would love to have that house now. It's for seventeen five. Yes, of course. Well, yeah, but yeah, to take it a step further, uh-huh. um, uh, learning from my wife Shannon, I uh, checked Zillow. And I looked up the address, mm-hmm. and it says the worth of it now today is three hundred and sixty-seven thousand one hundred. Hmm. 
which I thought was a little low, but I but I would think it's that, that it one d- bath, right? It does it does not take into consideration the historic value or its proximity to campus. Plus, you can only live there Thursday through Saturday, ten to four. So, <laughs> <laughs> if you could be there all the time, it'd be a seven figure listing. Right oh, now. easy, yeah, it'd go for a million. <laughs> <laughs> Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. What are we going to go out with? How about one uh, another one of those uh, snappy uh, jingles for <laughs> Clinton for Congress? Thank you, Randy. If you're paying too much for beans and greens and forgot what pork and beefsteak means, there's a fella here you ought to be listening to. Bill Clinton says those political wheels who made that big wheat surplus deal raised food prices for folks like me and you. Food prices are making our people poor and forcing them to eat less. We've got to stop foreign grain giveaways and prevent the middlemen from making excess profits. I'll work on these problems if you'll help me. Make Bill a U.S. Congressman. This is Ozarks at Large. With me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio is Anna Pope. Anna, hello. Hello. Listeners may not know your name yet, but they're going to become familiar with it because you have joined us here at KUAF. Uh-huh, yeah, started uh, this month. Report for America is uh, our partner in your endeavors. What do we know about Report for America? Well, Report for America is a national service organization that puts journalists in newsrooms and helps cover, you know, undercovered issues or communities. And um, it values local journalism and it's across the United States. And there's also Report for the World. So it's really everywhere. You're coming here and you're reporting on sort of growth in the economy and rural areas and change. Yes. So this is a huge thing in Northwest (laughs) Arkansas, I've come to, you know, realize. And uh, I just it's an important conversation that everybody is talking about. But it's also incredibly important to, you know, talk to communities and really see how it's impacting people that are here and now and, and, you know, people that are coming in and how that, you know, that's it's an interesting mix. And I want to talk about the first story that we'll hear from you. That's on tomorrow's show. First, a little bit about you. You have this great sort of um, life that you've been both in an urban, a city area, and rural. Yes. Oklahoma City and Lowell? Loyal. Loyal, Oklahoma. Yes. I I grew up back and forth between there. I went to school in the city and everything, but then um, my dad's family has a farm out there. And so we grew up on a, it's beef and wheat. And so we just, you know, they used to dairy and then they stopped. But yeah, so kind of had that experience and um, just grew up around and knowing kind of how that dynamic worked between the two areas. And um, it's it's valuable. Now, your father's family is a century farm family in Oklahoma? Yeah, we have two century farms technically, but wow. it's under one roof or under one family. They My grandparents married like, right. when they got married. So, yeah. And that means that they have been a farm family for more than 100 years. Yes, uh, it's been a long time. And it's interesting, too, because before my um, my mom's family was in the city, but before they moved, they also had a farm as well. So you kind of have those um, roots. Um, I, they moved into the city because, you know, my grandfather got sick and everything. And so they had that experience out there, too. So even then, there was still just a touch of, like, uh, understanding and uh, a knowledge of how that, that life works. And I bring that up because someone that's in your first story for us tomorrow is a Century Farm family. Yes. They just got it uh, here recently. They're uh, third-generation farmers and, uh, you know, up in Centerton. So, yeah. So, yes, this first story will concentrate on three kind of communities that have really changed or are changing as growth continues in Northwest Arkansas. Yes, they're beginning to see the signs of change. And as you and I have talked about, you know, there's communities that have seen this growth, but they're also on the cusp of it. Or, you know, there's kind of murmurings or just um, that awareness, at least that, oh, more people are visiting here or moving here, or there's different changes that are going to be seen in the community. And so it's an interesting dynamic to see how, um, you know, these areas that I went to, I went to Jasper and Centerton and Bella Vista. And then, you know, you just call around and talk to all sorts of people. But, you you really get a feel for, you know, how different people are taking it and also what, I guess, stages of change communities are in. And, um, you know, KUAF has always, uh, from what I've seen, has reported on a lot of things when it comes to growth, just a lot of 
Um, so I just wanted to kind of start off with that and get some footing in those communities and uh, realize how, while they're still kind of experiencing the same change, they're also, you know, having, um, I guess, different points of view on it. Yeah, Jasper and Bella Vista and Centerton, I love those three towns because they're all coming from small town origins, but all having sort of a different take on what is happening. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, Jasper is one of those places that I've heard that has always been known for just its beautiful scenery Mm -hmm. and outdoor activity. And Bella Vista used to be known as like a place for people to go and retire. It wasn't even a city. Yeah, it wasn't in Sydney until I think 2007. Right. And then um, with Centerton, it's always been farming. It's always been a rural area. So it's it's interesting how they all are small, but they all have their own unique story and kind of footing and how they started and where they're going. Uh, So that story is on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large. Then we're going to hear soon after that uh, a story you're working on about people who live in this area without permanent shelter. Exactly. Yes. And just kind of talking about how that affects different people and um, how the situation is still ongoing and growth is still impacting that. So a lot of people and, you know, the pandemic kind of threw a wrench in so many things. So it's always uh, an interesting kind of can of worms to open. (laughs) Anna Pope's first story for us will be on uh, tomorrow's Ozarks at Large. You're an o- Oklahoma State graduate. Yes, go Pokes. <laughs> we can both agree that we don't want the Sooners to win many things. Yes, that is very true. <laughs> <laughs> Anna, yes. thanks so much and welcome. Thank you. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. When caring for a seriously ill loved one, the journey shouldn't be taken alone. Circle of Life Hospice can help. Services are covered by Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance. No one is turned away based on an inability to pay. 750-6632 or nwacircleoflife.com for information. This is Ozarks at Large. When we think of minor league baseball, the first thing that might come to mind is, well, the players. Many are there, but just for a moment in the grand scheme of things, working their way up to the proverbial ladder to hopefully one day make it to the big leagues. But that's not just the case for the players. Minor league broadcasters often have the same aspirations, hoping to put their time in to one day get the call up to the majors. Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore spent a day at Arvest Ballpark with Nicholas Batters, the voice of the Naturals. On a cool evening at Arvest Ballpark in Springdale, from his perch in the press box, with his window wide open, sits Nicholas Batters, calling the play-by-play broadcast for the Northwest Arkansas Naturals, the AA affiliate minor league baseball team for the Kansas City Royals. Off to the fourth inning from Arvest Ballpark, Naturals and Sod Poodles tied at two. It'll be Jorge Barroso, the switch hitting right fielder to lead off the top of the fourth. He bats from the right side against the lefty Veneziano and the first pitch misses high and away for ball one. Barroso plays out. To say that batters is prepared might be an understatement. I generally have a color-coded system. I do strikeouts in red sharpie. First pitch strikes looking are going to be a light blue sharpie. First pitch strikes swinging are the dark blue sharpie. An automatic ball or strike It's going to be purple. Batters grew up in Northern California, falling in love with baseball. So I, well, I was a, a diehard baseball fan as a kid. I'd sit on the floor of my bedroom, sorting through baseball cards and, and listening to the game on a radio, uh, which is really what helped me first fall in love with the game. Uh, was I got a, I got a radio, just a little little pocket AM radio for Christmas. Um, it must have been six or seven or something like that, and. During baseball season, the only station that it would be tuned to would be the station that the Oakland A's games were on. And I'd carry that thing with me everywhere. I'm working on homework, listening to the game. I'm playing with my baseball cards or just playing in my room, listening to the game, falling asleep at night before school, listening to the game. I'd wake up early, run out to the street to go get the newspaper to read through the box scores as a kid. But it was was listening to games on the radio that really helped me fall in love with the sport of baseball and down the road make me realize that I want to be a baseball announcer, um, to be able to have that same impact on future generations of baseball fans that, say, Vince Catronio and Ken Korak did for me as a kid. He jumped right into radio broadcasting in college at Arizona State University. Initially, he did sports updates and produced weekly talk shows, but he moved quickly out of the studio and into the stadium booth. And then I got experience doing play-by-play of just about everything, baseball, softball, 
basketball with the student radio station and, and branched off getting experience in every other realm of sports journalism. I broke into professional baseball in the summer of 2018 with uh, an independent league team in Northern California, the Sonoma Stompers, in the now defunct Pacific Association. I went from there to working for the Elizabethton Twins uh, in the summer of 2019. At the time, they were the advanced rookie affiliate of the Minnesota Twins in the Appalachian League, which is now a collegiate summer league. Um, I went from there out to Australia for parts of two years, working with the Melbourne Aces in the Australian Baseball League. Uh, my first year out there, we were on a sports radio station in Melbourne, so I broadcasted all of the home games. Um, and then I did more TV my second season with the club. And then I went from Australia to now here in Arkansas. Batters gives me a tour of his booth. So this also doubles as my office. Um, during the day, during the off season, this is, this is where I work out of. Um, so, I mean, I have all of my rosters, um, box scores, lineup sheet hung up on the corkboard to my left. I have a computer that I run all of our commercials off of. Um, so we have both self-promos for the naturals, and I think it's something like 30 or 40 um, corporate sponsors that have commercials on the broadcasts. So I run all of those off of an automated DJ software on my company laptop. And then I feed that into the mixer and I feed my mixer to my personal laptop that I run the broadcast off of um, to send it to MLB's streaming service um, for us to be able to use. Um, I have my my scorebook. I'll have my notes out on my desk during the game uh, on top of an iPad with the live game stats and probably a few other random things scattered about. Your eyes have to be a lot of places at once. Do you ever find yourself um, looking at the wrong place at the wrong time? Or do you, how do you, how do you compensate for having to maybe look at three things at the same time? That's a great question. If you have any ideas, I'd love, I'd love to know. Cause I, I find myself, I, and this is probably the thing that I need to get best about improving this season is not missing pitches because I'll find myself sitting down either flipping through notes or updating my scorebook or checking live stats or updating social media or something like that because I live tweet the games too as I'm broadcasting. And I'll find myself missing a pitch or being behind on a pitch um, and then I end up being behind on action or, or, or missing a play or something like that. Uh, so that's that's something I'm, I'm working on training myself to do is getting to the point of getting into that rhythm of knowing when to look up and keep my eyes in the field because really that's the top priority. It's keeping my eyes on the field to make sure that I'm, I'm following the action. But at just 22 years old, Batter still has a long career ahead of him to improve those skills. He's driven, methodical, and already an excellent broadcaster. What excites you the most about getting to broadcast baseball games? There were a few moments last year. We had a very good team last year. A lot of once-in-a-generation type prospects, specifically Bobby Witt Jr., Nick Prado, and MJ Melendez. And there were a few times during the course of the season where I just had to to step back, metaphorically speaking, and, and kind of just take everything in, like the, the opportunity that I was presented with, um, that we're seeing the, the future stars of, of Major League Baseball a few years before they even crack into the big leagues. Um, and to be able to say that I was their double-A broadcaster, or I got to see Bobby Witt Jr. do his thing before he was a Major League All-Star. To me, that's going to be really special. Um, so granted, that's still a few years away, but even over the last couple of weeks, getting to see players that I broadcast make their Major League debuts is, is really, really special, whether it's a Bobby Witt Jr. I was at Arizona State when Spencer Torkelson uh, was in his first couple of seasons, so I got to broadcast some of his games, do some photography there. So it's been really cool to see him having success with the Detroit Tigers um, and just knowing that I'm a part of like a really early part of history and hopefully having some cool stories to tell my kids and grandkids down the road. And while he loves where he is with the Nats, he's got big dreams himself. I think the, the end goal for me is to be the voice of a, of a Major League Baseball team, whether that's on, on radio, on television. I don't know exactly what the future of I, I'd, I'd like to think that. 30, 40 years, all major league teams will still have a TV broadcast and a radio broadcast and, and they won't be simulcast. But just to, to be the voice of the major league team, of, of a major league team, would be would be a dream come true for me. I, I don't have a preference of, um, of medium or of, uh, of team, location. 
anyone that wants to hire me, I'm, I'm happy to go work for them. I mean, I came out to Arkansas from California on a whim, so I'll, I'll go just about anywhere a job will take me. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Matthew Moore. And one more baseball note, Razorback second baseman Robert Moore is being honored as the best fielder at his position with a collegiate Gold Glove Award. He's the first player in program history to earn a Gold Glove at any position. When the track and field world championships take place in Eugene, Oregon next month, there will be several University of Arkansas connections. This weekend, Britton Wilson, a current Arkansas student, and Shamir Little, a volunteer assistant with the Razorback track squad, both qualified for the 400-meter hurdles. Wilson was second at the U.S. Outdoor Championship Saturday, improving her Arkansas school record to 53.09 seconds as runner-up. From the 53.75 she posted in winning the SEC title this spring. She moves to number 10 on the U.S. all-time list and is number 3 on the all-dates all-time collegiate list. Ryan Krauser, another volunteer assistant for the Razorbacks, earned the U.S. shot put title with a throw of nearly 76 feet. That was more than 10 inches better than the second place throw at the U.S. championships. And Arkansas alum Sandy Morris claimed another U.S. championship pole vault title Friday, qualifying for the world championships as well. She cleared 15 feet, 9.75 inches for the win. And another Arkansas alum, Andrew Irwin, finished in a tie for third place in the men's pole vault at the U.S. championships equaling his season best of 18 feet, four and a half inches. He then won the jump off to qualify for the World Championships, which will be held from July 15th through the 24th at Hayward Field in Eugene, Oregon. And former Razorback basketball player Jalen Williams was selected by the Oklahoma City Thunder in last week's NBA draft. Williams, a graduate of Fort Smith Northside, could be playing NBA ball fewer than 200 miles from his hometown. Hi, this is Lee Wood, host of the KUAF Vinyl Hour that airs Saturday nights on KUAF. Only on public radio could a show exist like the Vinyl Hour, with co-hosts from our community sharing the music that they love and the stories behind what made them love this music. It's what public radio does best, teaches you new things while entertaining you and connecting you at the same time. The Vinyl Hour could not exist without listener support. So whether it's The Vinyl Hour, Shades of Jazz, The Pick and Post, Generic Blues Show, or any of the great locally produced programs here on KUAF, you can find a love for your music on your public radio station. And you make that possible. Make your gift today at supportkuaf.com to keep all the music you love on your public radio station. Thank you from everyone who works at KUAF and on Ozarks at Large for your continued support for this station, for public radio, and for this program. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Springdale, and Gateway. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich, Matthew Moore, Randy Dixon, and Anna Pope. Anna's first story for Ozarks at Large is on tomorrow's show that you can hear on 91.3 at noon and 7 p.m. We also go with you at your request when you use the Ozarks at Large podcast. It's available through your preferred podcast outlet. You can also hear the most recent edition of our show by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large, and you can find complete shows and individual stories and interviews at our website, ozarksatlarge.com. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Additional content today provided by the news staff at KUAR. That's Public Radio for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. We're back with you tomorrow. Please be safe. Thanks for your attention for this Monday. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums. We'll talk again very soon.